The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This evening, it's my privilege uh, to welcome the Reverend Bill Massey to preach this evening. Uh, Bill is the founder of Harvest Presbyterian Church in the Lampeter, uh, Lampeter uh, Willis Street region of Lancaster County. He's here tonight with his wife, Valerie, and uh, he has two adult children, William and Ruthie. So please give Bill a, good, a warm welcome. Thank you. Well, good evening. It's such a privilege to be here with you this evening to worship the Lord and to look into his word, uh, to seek comfort and help from his word. I would like to express my appreciation to Pastor uh, Chris Walker for this opportunity to be with you this evening, as well as I express my appreciation to Pastor David Kiefer for his help in getting ready this evening. One of the things that I told uh, David was, one of the things that I respected a great deal about Dr. Rogers was his ability to um, recruit, I think, outstanding individuals to be part of his pastoral team. Uh, so you here at Westminster, I think, are very well served uh, by a very fine uh, pastoral team. So give thanks to the Lord for that. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we're going to look at a portion of verse 8 this evening. Um, a while back, I preached a number of sermons uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, this is a chapter that's very well known to us. A lot of us, perhaps, have had this passage of Scripture read at our wedding. Valerie and I had our, uh, my dad, read this portion of Scripture at our wedding as well. It's a moving passage of Scripture, uh, but it's a very convicting and challenging portion of Scripture as well. I'm sure that when Paul uh, wrote this letter to the Corinthians, they didn't find this passage of Scripture so moving as they found it exceptionally challenging. And the reason, of course, is because Corinth uh, was a city uh, that people went to, uh, not uh, because it had wonderful traditions. Uh, it wasn't a particularly wonderful city to live in. It wasn't a place to raise your children. Uh, people went to Corinth to make it. Uh, very enterprising, visionary uh, types of individuals went to Corinth to make it. And uh, those were the kinds of individuals that made up the church in Corinth. Uh, it was a church composed of people not unlike maybe some of the people that you might find in Manhattan or New York City today. A very uh, hardworking, uh, visionary types of individuals, and, and there are particular difficulties in a church that can result from that kind of thing, and you sense that as you come to this passage. Uh, Paul is saying here in this passage that character is everything. Uh, he's cautioning us against current ideas about success, uh, so popular in America today and often very popular in our churches today. He's cautioning us against hiding ourselves behind our gifts 
and perhaps our outward goodness. Now, that may strike you as odd, uh, but when you think about it, our gifts and even our outward goodness can be exercised in such a way that it's very self-serving and very self-promoting, and that was a problem at the church in Corinth. And so Paul is probing painfully. He's asking, who are you in your heart? He's asking, who are you in your private world, you see, because he's saying um, that's the issue that matters. You can have extraordinary gifts, and you can have great outward goodness, but if you're lacking in character, you have nothing. And the reason for that, of course, is what's the bottom line in our salvation? What is it that God is doing in our lives? Well, if we know the Lord, if we are joined to Christ by faith, then God is at work conforming us to the likeness of Christ. So you can have extraordinary gifts, great upfront gifts, and you can demonstrate goodness in an outward way, but if you're lacking character... In spite of your gifts, in spite of your outward goodness, you have nothing because Christ-like character is everything. We're going to read these passages in just a moment. Before we do, though, let me just say a quick word about marriage. Um, On TV several years ago, there was a movie, and this particular movie concerned a man and a woman who were living together, and uh, they were having an argument in this particular case Uh, The man was wanting to get married, and the woman was not wanting to get married. And the woman, in a great outburst, said, Why do we need a piece of paper in order to love one another? I don't need a piece of paper to love you. It only complicates things. Now, what was that woman saying about love? Well, it seems that she was measuring her love by how much she wanted to receive romantic affection from her partner. And if that's the case, then, of course, a marriage certificate would do nothing to increase that kind of love. But, you see, when we look into the Bible, what we find is this. The measure of love is not by how much we want to receive it, but by how much we are willing to give of ourselves to others. And so, in many cases, when a person says, I love you, but let's not make any kinds of binding vows to each other, I love you... Uh, but let's not make this a permanent thing. Uh, what they're saying, in effect, is, is something like this. I have great feelings for you, but not the kind of love that's willing to close off all my options. I have great feelings for you, but not the kind of love that involves giving myself to you completely and permanently. But here's the thing. Jesus never says that to his people. Jesus never says that to his people. You see, true love doesn't simply make statements like, I love you, but true love, if it's true love, makes promises. It makes promises such as, I take you to be my wedded wife as long as we both shall live. And similarly, Jesus says to his own people, I have wedded you to myself completely, and permanently, and forever. In other words, child of God, Jesus' love for you 
will never fail. You are secure in the Lord's love. And I hope that comes as a tremendous comfort to you. Because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't even know what this evening will bring. But if we have Christ, we know this. His love will never fail. And that should be a tremendous anchor to our souls. I call your attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. Paul says, Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But Paul says, love never fails. I would invite you now to turn also back in your New Testament a little further now to chapter 8 of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Because here we have an example of unfailing love. We find it in verses 31 and following of Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that this is your very God-breathed word. And we thank you that you have joined your spirit to this, your God-breathed word. And so we are grateful that as we look into it and as we understand it truly, we are able to hear you speaking to our hearts about your unfailing love for us. And I pray that you would do that in our time together. But Father, even more than that, I would pray that you would help us, having received your unfailing love as your gift, I pray that you would help us in turn to express our unfailing love to others. That's hard. It's difficult. But help us to see if we have the life of Christ in us, according to your unfailing love, we can look to you for help and power to express unfailing love to others. These things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, what is your experience of the love of Jesus? Is the love of Jesus the greatest love that you have ever known? You know, someone who never got over Jesus' love for him was the great Augustine. And many of you know that Augustine was 
He was the great theologian, the great teacher in the early church, and he described his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ as finally falling in love after first looking for love in all of the wrong places. Here's what he says in his famous confessions, quote, Late it was that I loved you. Beauty so ancient and so new, late I loved you. I sought for you, and in my ugliness I plunged into the beauties that you have made. You were with me, and I was not with you. Those outer beauties kept me far from you. Now, Augustine, of course, is saying that until we come to faith in Christ as Savior, we we love and we serve and we devote ourselves and we sacrifice ourselves supremely for countless things in the created order instead of for Christ. Idols. You see, the Bible calls these substitutes for Christ idols, and serving our idols leaves us empty, and it leaves us fretful, it leaves us anxious, it leaves us without a lasting sense of peace and contentment and purpose. And Augustine, in his Confessions, laments that at one time he had feared to lose his idols. There's that great prayer, save me, but not yet. He had feared to lose his idols, and then wonderfully, lo and behold, quite unexpectedly in the year 386 A.D., he discovered the superior pleasures and joys of the love of Jesus Christ. And so he writes about it in these words. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He says, you drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. Child of God, can you identify with that experience of God's love in Christ Jesus. I suspect that even if you can't describe your conversion in quite the same terms of Augustine's, you will say, yes, knowing Christ, knowing Christ involves moving from knowing God distantly and impersonally to knowing Him directly and immediately and intimately in Christ. That's what makes salvation in Jesus Christ so wonderful and rich and satisfying. But what more specifically is the love of Jesus like? Well, that brings us to 1 Corinthians 13. In this chapter, we see love in action. And the love in action that we see here before it's a love that you and I ever express to others, the love in action that we see here is first and foremost Christ's love for the believer. Christ's love for his own people. 
In verse 7, for example, Paul says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But this is the love of Christ that the believer knows. A love that always bears, always believes, always hopes, always endures. And now in verse 8, Paul says that Jesus' love is a love that never ends. The Greek verb that is translated ends in our sanctuary Bibles literally means to fall to pieces or collapse or to go down. The point Paul's making is that Christ's love for us never fails. The Lord loves us completely. He loves us permanently. He loves us lastingly and forever. Or to put it another way, we are eternally secure in the lower love of our Lord. Now, where can we go for a description of the Lord's unfailing love? Well, that's why we go to verse... This is 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8. It's one of the best places where Paul says that nothing can separate the believer from God's love. And, and that is such a wonderful assurance because there may come times in our lives, uh, there may come times in our lives when we think that God has turned against us. There may come times in our lives when we're tempted to believe that God has abandoned us. There come times in our lives when our trials are so great that we might doubt that He still loves us. Or perhaps the guilt in our lives has made God's love seem far away and distant. Or again, Our fears can get the best of us. I know that. And we may be tempted to doubt God's love. But Romans 8 helps because in these verses we are assured of God's undying love. And His undying love is an anchor to our spirits. But also in 1 Corinthians 13, we're admonished and encouraged to express this very undying love that we have received freely as a gift from God. We're encouraged to express that to others. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, how our love falters. Oh, how it waxes and it wanes. Let's consider two things quickly. First, God's undying love for us. What's the unshakable foundation for God's undying love for us? The unshakable foundation of God's undying love for us concerns not something the believer has done, not something the believer can ever do. Instead, the unshakable foundation of God's undying love for the believer concerns our Savior's death for our sins, which has brought us forever into a right relationship with God. Think of it this way. You've probably heard stories like this. The story is told of a young woman who was pulled over by a law enforcement officer, given a traffic citation, because she broke the law. And the woman appeared in traffic court before the judge. She was guilty of sin, guilty of breaking the law, therefore required by the law either to pay a hefty fine or if unable to pay the hefty fine to pass a time in jail and because. Being unable to pay the fine, the woman was condemned at that point to pass a time in jail, but the judge was her father. And being a just judge, he had to pass 
judgment on his guilty daughter, but because of his love, he laid aside his robes of justice. He came down from the bench, and now as his daughter's representative, he sacrificially paid her fine. And because of his intervention, she now stood before the judgment seat justified. On the basis of the sacrifice of a representative, the woman now had a right standing with the law, and she was free. But every child of God should know that God has done a similar thing for us in Christ. You see, before the judgment seat of God, we all stand guilty. Therefore, we are all bound by His law to spend an eternity in hell, separated from Him. But because of God's love, His Son, in obedience to His will, laid aside His celestial robes of glory came down from heaven into this world as man, and as our representative, he sacrificially paid our fine on the cross. He representatively endured the hell that you and I deserve. Now, the most important thing here this evening is this. Have you received Jesus as your representative, sin-bearer? I'm not asking you if you have high thoughts of Jesus. I'm not asking you if you're attracted to him. I'm not saying uh, you think he's a great moral example, a great teacher, uh, the founder of a new religion, a martyr to a great cause, or any of those things. The most important thing is this. Have you received this Jesus as your representative sin bear? And there is no more important question than that here this evening. Because if you have, if you receive this representative sin bear, then you stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God, the judge of men and angels, justified. That is, the judge of men and angels has not only declared you forgiven, that's only half of the good news. He has declared you righteous in his sight. All for the sake of your representative's righteousness now imputed to you, credited to your account. God clothed your representative Jesus with your righteousness, or with your un, with your unrighteousness on the cross, and has now clothed you with his righteousness. We had a hymn sing. I wanted to hymn sing hymn 520. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. In flaming worlds with these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head, you see. If you have received this representative, then you stand before the judge righteous. You are free. You are secure forever in the arms of God's love because of what Christ has done for you. God's love for you will never fail. He has wedded himself to you forever. And Paul impresses on us the glories of our freedom by interrogating us with five questions in Romans 8. Free from opposition. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul asks. If God has justified us and he's the all-powerful one, then why are you so afraid of opposition? Or again, free from anxiety. Paul continues, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God who has justified us was willing to give up his most treasured possession, his son for sinners then can't we trust in Him to provide all our needs now that we are His children? 
You see the argument there from the greater to the less. You might put it this way. Think of it like this. If a rich benefactor has done the really hard thing now of giving you a million dollars, won't he do the incomparably easier thing of giving you a few coins for the traffic meter? Of course he will. Or again, free from accusations. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who accuses us? Our consciences accuse us often, don't they? We know what thoughts we can struggle with in our secret moments. The loss, the covetousness, the envy, the hatred, the unwillingness to forgive. And then there's the devil who accuses us. He's not so interested in awakening the consciences of unbelievers as he is with destroying the consciences of believers. He savages us with accusations such as, how can you call yourself a Christian when these kinds of thoughts are passing through your heart? Or how can you possibly believe that God would send his son for the likes of you? Why are you so stupidly naive as to believe that? Wake up. Grow up. But my friends, if God through faith in Christ has declared us righteous, then we can face all these accusations by standing on the unshakable foundation of his perfect acceptance and undying love. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. I love these words. He says, I know what the devil will say to you. He will say to you, you are a sinner. Well, tell him you know that you are. But that for all of it, you are justified. He will tell you of the greatness of your sin. Will tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will tell you of all your mishaps, all your backslidings, all your offenses and your wanderings. Well, tell him and tell your own conscience as well that you know all that, but that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that although your sin be great, Christ is quite able to put it all away. You know, do the justified people of God still have to confess their sins? Of course they must. But there's this, there's this great difference between confessing your sins as an orphan and confessing your sins to God as his child. An orphan has no relationship with God. He's separated from God by his sins. He's under the threat of God's eternal condemnation. How may an orphan have a relationship with God? He must acknowledge his sins to God, trusting in Jesus' death as the payment for them. But you see, if God has justified us through faith in Jesus then we can never be anything less than God's own child. We can, yes, we can disrupt our fellowship with God by our sin. We, we can do that indeed, but we can never fall away from our relationship with him as his adopted child. God will never disinherit even one of his children. And when believers acknowledge their sins to him, they do so as justified and adopted people. And when they do, they discover 
But their Heavenly Father is faithful, and He is happy to forgive them and to cleanse them from a guilty conscience. And it's, so it's from the standpoint of our justification by God that we must face our accusers. Or again, free from condemnation. Who is, who is to condemn, Paul asks. Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Child of God, do you ever fear falling away from the Lord unto condemnation? Do you fear making a shipwreck of your faith? Remember your Savior's intercessions before the throne of God right now for you. Jesus warned Simon Peter that he would deny him three times. But he also promised him that because of his prayers and intercessions, Peter would be restored. And so Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You see, Jesus' intercessions for us call down such aid to our faith that it's able to stand in the darkest hour. When we are having a hard time praying to God, when we don't feel like coming to God in prayer anymore, it comes as a tremendous comfort to know that Jesus is praying for us nevertheless. And with that comfort and assurance, we are able to come to Him. Free from alienation, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know, in a sense, this question is just another version of all the earlier ones. The one thing we would really have to fear is being alienated and separated from the love of Christ. And we see many things that seem capable of separating us from Christ. Trouble, hardship, persecution. These things Christians are facing in some form today. Famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, these come to so many. But Paul says these things will not separate us from the Lord. In fact, we are more than conquerors in them because of God's undying love for us. A little girl that I heard about was at one of those uh, family reunion picnics, and there was a great soccer game going on out there. And you know how it goes. This little girl went out there to play, and sooner or later she fell. She got trounced, got trounced by all her older and much larger siblings and and cousins. And so she ran from that field of conflict and tears and hurt and shame, and she vowed she'd never go back out there again. But her father was a very wise man, and so he took her up in his arms, and he went back out there on the field with her. And now holding her up, Now, she was able to face down everything that threatened her. And it was out there on the field in her father's arms that she was able to finish the game as a conqueror. The Lord does that for us. We are more than conquerors because of His undying love that holds us up. God's undying love for us, and last, our undying love for others. 
You see, since we know the undying love of God at such a cost, and since we have received that freely as his gift, it's not simply that we must express that undying love to others. Yes, we must. But even more than that, it's that we can. We can because of this union that we enjoy with Christ now and the life of Christ that is within us. You know, our love falters. Our love falters. Every child of God is involved in a process of growing and maturing and representing the love of God, and we fall so far short. You know, remember again what's involved, uh, being patient with another's failings. That's hard. Being kind to those who are unkind to us. Not boasting about ourselves or promoting ourselves or insisting on having our own way, making less of ourselves and more of others. These are hard things. How about forgiving people who have hurt us? Forgiveness comes at a cost, doesn't it? It really matters because of the hurts. Refusing to get angry when they irritate us. Be, how about this one? Believing, believing the best about people <laughs> instead of the worst falsehoods and rumors and gossip. This is impossible. I hope as soon as we say that, we feel as though we're bumping up against the wall. This is impossible for us except by the grace and power of God. Paul says love never fails. Where our love fails, it falters about as much as everything else about us. But Christ's love never fails. Listen to the words of Dr. Philip Ryken. These are wonderful words. He says, it's when we run out of love especially, when we run out of love especially, that we need to remember the never-failing love of Jesus. When the Scripture says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, this includes our own feeble efforts to love like Jesus. You see, as we try and often fail to love, we are the, at the very same time being loved by God because we can never be separated from that love. Therefore, we should never say, I have no love left to give because at the very moment we say that, we are still being loved by the invincible love of Christ. At every place in life where we find it hard to love, the love of Jesus is there to help us. Not even a loveless heart can separate us from His love. By faith in the Son of God, we are permanently connected to a love source that will never fail, and therefore our love can be renewed again and again and again and again. At Harvest Church, on so many occasions, I told the people about my favorite dogwood tree in Lancaster County. It blooms in the northeast corner of a front yard in a home about two miles from ours. I'm going to see it bloom again here in a few weeks. And I will drive by that dogwood tree. It's a large one. It's an old one. And I love it because as I'm looking at it, the sun, which comes, you know, which shines from the south, shines through those kind of translucent blossoms. And I see that dogwood tree bloom in white and pink. Blooms in white and pink. And I wonder, how can that be? And I think, 
That's a picture of my union with Christ. I think about how maybe, I don't know, uh, the branch of a pink dogwood was engrafted into the trunk so that the life of the trunk is in the branch and it blooms, that branch does, with the life of the trunk. Brothers and sisters, the Lord took us and grafted us into the trunk of Christ by faith. And the wonderful thing is now the life of Christ dwells in us to make us and empower us to bloom the blossoms of Christ-likeness and Christ-like character. So with that in mind, with that encouragement, glory in God's undying love for you, but at the same time, extend your undying love to others. May the love of God be seen in us, his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful that you saw us in our sin and all our ill-deserted, you loved us. And we are so grateful that you took us, you worked faith in Jesus in us as a gift, and you joined us to Christ. And now the life of Christ and the life of the Holy Spirit dwell within us. What a glorious, marvelous thing the Christian is. Father, we thank you for your undying love for us. It's an anchor to our spirits as we face difficulties and uncertainties. But Lord, help us to remember that this undying love that we have received from you as a gift is one that you expect us to extend to others. That's hard. And it's not just that we ought to do this. It's that you will empower us to do it because we are branches joined to the trunk of Christ. Oh God, we pray, may your undying love for us be seen in our undying love for others. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.